So I've been reminded to remind us that um, as we embark on these studies and probably have a organised Sunday evening event every other Sunday, it'll probably work out the second and the fourth Sunday of the series um, in place of our evening service. Um, that's not to say we're abandoning our collective assembly outreach. If you remember, we actually did make the point that the remembrance itself is a proclamation of the Lord's death. So we should consider that as a, a gospel service opportunity, as well as these ministries too. So it's kind of a, an all-inclusive thing. Um, just a point of clarification, the white sheet that um, was made available last week, and there's a few left for this week, is actually a description on the first side of the, the way we expect these ministries and the uh, preceding discussions to happen. Um, on the back side, it doesn't actually uh, describe the Philippians detail. That's what you've got on your stripy page today. Um, so just to clarify that point, there's two, um, two versions of the Philippians summary, one for your Bible and one if you're a bit hard of seeing, as I was saying before. Um, so the plan is that we will kind of systematically go through a, a Bible study, in this case the book of Philippians, and um, starting next week with the details to be arranged in the evening, we'll have um, a discussion uh, probably at someone's home. So I'm going to describe what's on the uh, sheet in a second. It's kind of an overview of where I'd like us to go with our topics. But before we go to that detail, I'd just like to give a little bit of background, a little of context to um, Paul writing the letter. So today we'll be very much setting the scene, describing the structure of the study, and we'll take it from there. So in a nutshell, and I'm sure it's a little more complex than this, but in a nutshell, Paul's career post the road to Damascus was approximately three years in Arabia. It's kind of a bit of a mysterious part of Paul's Christian education, but he talks about that um, in the book of Galatians. Um, he then made his home at Antioch, so he was a, an elder in the Church of God in Antioch for 10 years. That was before he went on his travels. He then spent about 15 years traveling. Um, and there was broadly three missionary journeys during that time. Um, and then latterly, in maybe the last five years of his life, he spent most of the time in prison. And there's some conjecture as to where he spent that time in prison and whether it was one solid block or whether there was a break. But um, I'm going to favour the um, interpretation that he spent two years under house arrest. This is after his 15-year uh, missionary journeys. He ended up in Rome. He spent a couple of years under house arrest in Rome. Um, had a bit of a break and, and maybe did some more travelling briefly and then, then ended up back in Rome in prison which uh, preceded his martyrdom. So that was in a nutshell is Paul's life post um, the road to Damascus. Um, 
He went to Philippi about halfway through the 15 years of his missionary journeys, and it was his second major missionary journey that we um, see him arriving at Philippi. Um, He visited again about five years later, and we get that in Acts 20, and and we're going to read his first encounter with the folks in Philippi from Acts 16. We'll read that in some detail. But if you go to Acts 20, the first six verses of Acts 20 imply that Paul went back two more times um, before he ended up um, in prison in Rome. And then I have also a sense that he, in that break between being under house arrest in Rome and going back to prison in Rome, I have the sense that maybe he visited Philippi again for a fourth time, very briefly, with Timothy. And you maybe pick that up from... First uh, Timothy chapter 1 but those are for your investigation so that's a, a little bit of um, context to when this book was written and we will go through what's on the sheet in some detail in a second but um, let's go to Acts 16 it's really a, a great read I'm going to read the, um, the account of Paul and his first encounter with the folks in Philippi I actually meant to print a map so you can see where it is. Uh, I'll bring something next week so you can see that. But um, we'll come to that, the the geography of it in a second. So we're on Paul's second um, ministry, sorry, missionary journey. And this is maybe he's been traveling around having left Antioch as his permanent base. He's been traveling around for about six or seven years. Uh, at this point. So verse 6 of Acts 16, Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called him to preach the gospel to them. Verse 11, Lydia's conversion. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothras. And the next day we went to Neapolis, From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. 
She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned round and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains became loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his household were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates had ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and they left. It's actually a really cool um, narrative, I think, of... Uh, quite specific outreach interactions that um, Paul was able to have at Philippi. Um, what I want to do is talk a little bit about Philippi the place. I'd like to talk a little bit about the Church of God in Philippi, some background, uh, and then we'll get into the letter itself, and that's the point at which I'll explain the structure that we've got on the chart, which is the basis for our next few weeks ministries and discussions so um, Google is a a fabulous tool isn't it when you Google um, when was Philippi established actually you get quite a number of variations on a theme so one theme is that Alexander the Great established it something like 300 BC and named it Philippi after his dad who surprisingly was called Philip (laughs) Another variation is it was established earlier than that, in, in fact, before Alexander the Great was born, and it was established by Philip II, um, who was Alexander the Great's dad. 
Um, however, it was around, I don't know, 300 to 300 years BC when it was established. In that part of Greece, there is, or there was apparently, um, quite a proliferation of very productive gold mines. And Philippi was on the sea um, and served two major functions in respect to the gold that was there. One was security, so it was a very much a fortified city that was guarding the port from, I'd like to think, pirates and things like that who would go in. They would be um, kind of protecting the gold reserves. Um, so keeping very fortified, you know, the, the ancient equivalent of Fort Knox was Philippi. Um, that's one side. The second is it's a, a really key commercial centre because of the gold. So there would be a lot of trading going on um, and of course money attracts money. So um, it was very much a commercial um, centre. Um, so built to guard gold mines, um, probably by Alexander the Great. Um, that for me puts a really interesting complexion on the people we might find in Philippi, um, and of course we extrapolate that to the people that we might find in the Church of God in Philippi. We'll have um, more of that a bit later. Very much a cosmopolitan um, city. So lots of foreigners. It was a Roman colony, so occupied and controlled by Rome. So I imagine a lot of military personnel um, with a, um, as well as entrepreneurial types, Lydia being one of them, who was from Thyatira. I've not, not actually looked where Thyatira is relative to Philippi. I don't know if that meant she was seen as a foreign person or um, whether it was in the vicinity. But that's um, a little bit of background that gives us some uh, interesting complexion on the nature of um, of Philippi the place. And then we have um, the Church of God in Philippi. We know a little bit about it and its people based on the passages of scripture we've read in Acts 16 where we're first introduced to the place. And obviously we'll discover a little more about the folk in Philippi from um, the letter that Paul wrote to them. Consider Lydia and her family. So I'm going to say that she was an entrepreneurial, wealthy, successful business lady that had moved to Philippi because of the business opportunity um, from Thyatira where she, where she was born and bred. So an opportunist, um, entrepreneur as I say, someone who... Um, her business was dealing in purple, so this was taking advantage of the wealth that would be around the place because of the gold. So not necessarily directly involved in finance, but perhaps more in a, in a service industry, providing posh clothes to the people who had racks of cash because they were involved in the gold. Um, so you have the sense of someone who was very successful, um, probably in the upper echelons as far as wealth was concerned um, but nevertheless someone who um, feared God 
And although perhaps not necessarily having any background or teaching in the Christian message, she certainly had um, a fear for God and frequented the place of prayer. Um, Interesting that Paul went to that place knowing that that's what it was for. So anticipating finding people there that, um, if you like, he had a, a head start because they were already interested in spiritual things. So Lydia was um, that kind of person, uh, successful from a material point of view and a very healthy curiosity from a spiritual point of view. Um, we learn a little bit about her um, character in that she immediately invited Paul and, and uh, his companions to stay with her. So um, I'm not sure when Paul did his travels, whether he would book a hotel or, or the equivalent or whatever it was, but certainly um, he was made to feel welcome in, um, in Lydia's home and family. It's uh, interesting that um, it's said about Lydia that she was one whose heart the Lord opened to Paul's message. I think that's a really lovely expression. Um, It wasn't that Paul delivered a compelling message, I'm sure he did. Um, No doubt empowered by the Holy Spirit. But it was the Lord that opened Lydia's heart to to Paul's message. There's an awful lot in that. It's um, it's about the um, role that the Holy Spirit plays in our understanding and appreciation of spiritual things. It's not something that we sit down with a, an academic orientation and cleverly work out ourselves that these things must be true. Um, you know that probably is is a, an academic study of theology. Um, Nothing wrong with that, but that's not how we become a Christian. We, we become a Christian through the grace of the Holy Spirit, opening our hearts. It's not our heads, but it's our hearts to the message that we receive. Um, and I'm sure we can relate to that. That's our, every one of us, that's our experience. We've had our hearts challenged by the wonder of the love of God expressed through the Lord Jesus and the stories we know in God's word about the Lord Jesus and we find ourselves here. So there was a, an element of that kind of um, experience going on in the church of God in Philippi. Um, a thirst, um, and in Lydia's case, um, a, a wealthy person who, as we'll see, made substantial contributions, I imagine, to the finance side of the church and the things that the church supported. In contrast to Lydia, you have um, the image of the Philippian jailer. Um, I actually was thinking that he would naturally be a Roman soldier. I'm not sure that that's true. Uh, I kind of defaulted to that thinking that because it was a Roman colony, then anyone vaguely associated with the military would be Roman but that might be the case someone maybe can correct me um, if, if it's clear somewhere um, what this guy's situation was um, maybe he was a local um, and had a, 
a kind of position of responsibility, but you also have the sense that there's an element of, of weakness in, in the jailer. Um, we have no um, clue what kind of pressure he would have been under. Obviously, given the responsibility to guard prisoners uh, in the prison, um, and the, the, the problem that he would have had had any of those prisoners escaped is he would have been kind of derelict of his duty or incompetent or something, and clearly as a consequence would have been um, removed, actually executed. Very severe stuff. You kind of get that, it's implicit in his reaction to when he saw that um, all of the uh, prison doors were open uh, and his instinct was to commit suicide. This is a guy who has a family um, and, you know, loss of the prisoners was an act of God, a, a, a violent earthquake. But that's the kind of background and culture that this guy was operating in. Um, but stopped in his tracks, literally on the brink of suicide, by a confrontation with Almighty God's power, in that an earthquake had happened, all this had gone on, it was very transparent to him that the prisoners were free to go. That must have been very clear. Um, and he stopped in his tracks by Paul saying, you don't want to do that, we're all here. Um, and you know, a person whose attention and life had been arrested by the evident power of God in a very specific circumstance. And of course, he goes and finds Paul and Silas, and no doubt, although it says he woke up, I don't know whether he was sang to sleep by Paul and Silas that night, but they were singing. That must have had a big impact. At some point he dropped off, so wakes up with the, the bangs of the earthquake, and then he finds himself um, casting himself before Paul and Silas. And just the impact of their testimony. And this time it's not um, a message that Paul had preached that had captured the attention of Lydia, who'd had her heart open to it by God, this was far more dramatic. It was um, a violent earthquake, uh, which was just after the singing that he'd heard from men who'd just been, it says, beaten with rods. Um, they must have been in a pretty bad way. And I guess a rough prison guard would have seen all kinds and nothing like this before. So here's a man whose attention was abruptly arrested by the behaviour of Paul and Silas, their faith, their joy in the Lord. Um, and of course, he, he asks the question, what do I do to have that? You know, in, in, um, in our world, we might say, I don't know what he's on, but I want some of that, because it has such an impact. And again, there's a, a challenge for us there in our, in our life. We'll talk a little bit um, as we go through the detail of the book, of course, but it's um, preaching the gospel. Um, there's quite a lot of famous scriptures in Philippians. One of them is Paul's statement for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's all wrapped up in a very clear um, exposition of what the gospel is about. So here was the Philippian jailer's attention being arrested by the gospel as delivered through the life um, in very difficult, difficult circumstances of the Apostle Paul and Silas and his companions. 
Um, it reminds me of that uh, verse in First Peter. We were thinking about it on Tuesday night when we were talking about gentleness. You know, always be ready for an answer to anyone, anyone asks you for the reason for the hope that you have and do it with gentleness and respect. Well, here's a real-life example of that. The, the jailer said, you know, explain this uh, hope that you have. What must I do to be saved? And of course, in all of its simplicity, but in all of its power, the message that Paul delivers is believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You do that and your house do that and you'll never look back. And uh, of course, that's what the jailer did instantly. And he was filled with joy because he would believed in the Lord Jesus. That's what it says. And I can imagine the transformation it had at him was one of those um, dramatic um, going to say Damascus, Damascus Road experiences in his case it was a um, Philippian jail experience that he could relate back to and of course his testimony had a dramatic impact on his family I can imagine there's a contrast between the earlier nights that Paul and his companions had stayed in Lydia's house with um, loads of posh clothes and curtains and stuff around the house um, you have the sense that the jailer lived in the jail with his family. How do we know that? Well, um, he took him to his home, but you have the sense that he was still in jail. So bear in mind the brief from the jailer to the jailer was um, guard him carefully, and they put him in the inner chamber with his feet in the stocks. You get the sense that that was for real bad people that you didn't want to roaming around but they clearly released them from the inner chamber and he, with his family, addressed, sorry, dressed the wounds of Paul and Silas and gave them something to eat. They were still in the prison. That's my understanding. So that's where he would have lived, albeit in a, a more open part of the prison. And we know he was still in prison because it, it was the next morning. This happened overnight, by the way. The dressing of the wounds and the feeding of them and overnight um, in the morning the, the message came from the officials that you should let those people go so my sense is that the jailer lived with his family in a more open part of the jail where there was perhaps interaction with prisoners just kind of conjecture but that's the way I see it I just see this contrast in the background situation to the jailer the background situation to Lydia and where are they they're all um, being introduced to this new church of God and I'm just thrilled for the illustration that the, uh, the church of God in Philippi like any other church of God is a collection of different people that God has called together to serve unitedly in a real special way um, can you imagine Lydia and the jailer comparing themselves with each other I don't think so <laughs> I think Lydia and her family, and they would have got on with what, what they were called to do and contribute in the, in the service of God's people in Philippi, and so would the jailer and, and his friends and family. So you've got these very different people with different backgrounds, different gifts, different um, styles, cultures, and they're brought together and they're serving harmoniously, as we'll see, uh, for the most part in a church of God. And that's the way the Church of God in Philippi was. Uh, we'll read a little bit about Epaphroditus at some point. Again, 
cleverer people than me can explain whether Epaphroditus was um, a Philippian um, or whether he just seemed to be a roving person. But certainly the Philippians um, sent a gift to Paul while he was in Rome through Epaphroditus. He was their messenger. Um, Maybe that's another character that we can think about um, as we see some aspects of of him. So... um, these circumstances, another question I have, which I don't know the answer to, is how long did Paul spend in Philippi? I think we can um, puzzle together that he visited at least four times. Uh, and the, the first one, which we've read about, seemed to be the longest, but you have the sense it was only a few days. Um, you know, sometimes Paul spent uh, years in one place. I have the sense it was just um, a short time in Philippi, but they had a huge impact on him. And as we move into the letter, um, and those of us who were out on Tuesday, I was encouraging us to read Philippians in one sitting. Um, it takes about 20 minutes. It takes me about an hour. Um, it takes about 20 minutes, and it's a really good letter. You know, some of the epistles don't read like letters. The deep in theological concepts. There is a bit of that in Philippians, but not a lot. Um, and you, know, you have the sense that the Paul had a fabulous time in Philippi when he met those people. Um, great stories to tell about the time he spent in Lydia, who opened her home just on the same day that she got saved. The amazing story of being, you know, um, charged and convicted and punished without a proper trial and his experience in leading the Philippian jailer to the Lord. Just just a great, rich tapestry of experience that Paul would have had from his time in Philippi. And as a consequence, he had a real affection for them and they for him too. So there is evidence that um, what would probably be a fairly wealthy church uh, would use the likes of Epaphroditus to go and find Paul and um, pass on gifts for his well-being. So, to the letter. Um, the structure of the chart that you have, and you'll notice there's five kind of columns in the chart with a, an overall summary across the top. We'll deal with that summary in the last few minutes. Um, we haven't got five sessions. We've got four sessions, including this one. But... Um, my thoughts were going in this direction before I saw the detail um, for the rest of the uh, subjects uh, on these series. And I'm grateful that uh, some of them go beyond one series. So we'll probably get to the end of number three um, by the end of September, which gives us four and five to pick up another day. Or, um, if you like, an ongoing you know, Bible discussion um, for our own uh, meditation. Um, there's some confusion. Oh, well, let's just go through the, the top um, the top part of it, which is a, an attempt at a, a summary. So, the author was the Apostle Paul and Timothy. That's what it says. You don't hear that very often. Um, it was written by Paul around AD 64, and there's some uh, op- uh, differing opinions on that sometime between AD 61 and 64 um, certainly written from uh, prison 
but probably an open prison. So Paul had a degree of freedom uh, written from Rome. Um, Timothy um, had also been in Macedonia, um, of which Philippi seems to be the capital. So he'd uh, likely been with the Philippian church as well. So you have the sense that Paul and Timothy wrote the letter. I don't know whether that means Paul wrote the letter, dictated it to Timothy, uh, whatever Timothy was involved and he was known um, to them too. And of course written to the Church of God in, in Philippi. It's interesting to notice in the opening few verses that the Church of God gets some structure to it, overseers, deacons and saints. Um, and again, it's not a, an epistle that is necessarily rich in... Um, I would say systematic doctrinal teaching, but you get throwaway comments that give us some insight into the way the church was structured. Um, if you look up some commentaries, you get uh, different views on what the key message is from Philippians. Um, one commentator I looked at said the key word in Philippians is all, and the key message is about unity. Uh, maybe certainly that theme does pervade but uh, I'm going to opt for um, the key expression being joy Joy's mentioned 17 times uh, in lots of different contexts it's about Paul's joy it's about the joy of the Lord it's also about the um, Philippians joy as well um, interestingly I don't know whether you remember JDT did a ministry on Philippians not long ago it's obviously got a very key passage of scripture in Philippians 2 from 6 to 11 which is um, about the humility of the Lord Jesus and often we home in on that and think that's what Philippians is about well for sure Paul goes into a wonderful meditation on the um, humility uh, and the stoop that the Lord Jesus took when he um, became our saviour but he uses it to support an argument um, about the behaviour that Christians should have your mind should be that of the, the same as that of Christ Jesus is the preceding verses but JDT in his ministry was saying it's quite amazing that, that um, actually that key passage of scripture for us is only there to support the real point of the letter, which was admonition. It was, if you go to chapter 4, as we will, you'll see that there were a couple of ladies that were publicly arguing with each other and in the process undermining the unity of the church. And it seems like that's the punchline for the book and all of the other things are Paul um, building up to that message. But let's go with the key message being Christian unity uh, is to be maintained at all costs. That was certainly the burden um, of Paul's message over and over again. Um, the purpose of a letter, um, a status update on Paul's um, situation. Um, I think it's lovely to read the, the, the book of Philippians in one sitting because you really do get a sense that he's writing to people he's got a great deal of affection for they know his circumstances because they've heard about it and they've sent him a gift. Um, he's acknowledging the gift 
um, giving thanks for it and in the process giving them an update and although he's in prison he's kind of giving them some reassurance that he's doing okay it's uh, an expression of affection and thanks there is some admonition going on so he has a report presumably from Epaphroditus that um, the church is doing really well but there's some difficult areas um, and that admonition leads to exhortation encouraging the people in the church to stand firm and to be united together often we kind of wonder whether um, the epistles the letters to the churches were read in public in the church in one sitting I think difficult to imagine that on some of the longer more complex books like Romans for example can't imagine that that was just uh, read can imagine it being circulated and becoming the object of a study I'd like to think that Philippians was both that um, they did take the time to read the report back to the church report back from Paul the guy who they had so much affection for uh, to the church and of course they then would uh, maybe take some time to um, study the implications of what he'd written the structure there is quite a clear structure there's a salutation at the beginning which is what you'd expect in any letter um, he goes beyond that and starts talking about prayer and we'll see some of the affection and aspirations that Paul has for his friends in Philippi very clearly come out in his in his prayer then there's the report a status update on how he's getting on personally with his own circumstances then there's this Christ-centered encouragement um, a wonderful meditation on the um, incarnation and humiliation of the Lord Jesus um, and he's using that by means of um, encouragement and warning and exhorta ex exhortation and then greeting so that there is a, a structure there key verse uh, again this isn't my key verse uh, when you look up a summary of Philippians you get all kinds of people offering um, what a key verse might be but Philippians 4 1 and 2 appeal to me you might think that there's some more profound stuff that we would home in on but actually it comes at just the right part of the book he's gone in the first three chapters through this update and he's talking very much about his own progress and appreciation in the gospel and how the Lord um, through the Philippians is looking after them he's talked about the attitude that the Lord Jesus has and then he says therefore my brothers you whom I love and long for my joy and crown you know, that's serious affection that he has for them that that's looking back on the previous three chapters um, sorry my joy and crown that is how you should stand firm in the Lord dear friends and then he goes on to say I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sintiki, I don't know how you pronounce that, I'm sorry, to agree with each other in the Lord. And that's really the, the punchline. It's in the, with all this background of Paul's experience of them, of the Lord Jesus, their experience of the Lord Jesus, the fellowship together, that's how you should stand firm in the Lord, but you need to be united. Would have been pretty challenging for Yodia and Sintiki sitting there listening to uh, their names being mentioned in this context. So there you have the overview. For me, it divides into uh, these five sections. I should say some, some of you may be familiar with this structure. 
it was part of a camp study back in 99. It was a southeast camp study. Um, and I'm thinking we divided the, the book into five sections because there were five days at camp. But actually, I've tried to look at it a different way. And I think this is really a good way to um, get as much out of the book, even if it means we have to um, put two to another time. So the first section is very much about the gospel, best news ever, um, getting the right mindset, chapter two. Chapter three splits into two, called the first part, spiritual milestones, and that's very much Paul reflecting on his own spiritual development and encouraging maturity in the people in the church. And then there's where do we belong, which is the second half of chapter three, holds the verse that says our citizenship is in heaven. Can imagine there was lots of scope for distraction in Philippi with all of the material wealth and stuff going on. So it's a real check on that. And then there's complete well-being. It's total uh, dependence on the Lord in nothing. Be anxious. Comes in chapter four. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Is there too? So that's how the um, thing pans out for me. You've got a little bit of a structure as well on the matrix so we've got a key verse for each of those a key message for each of those and then there's some questions which um, we will use for our discussion times but it's not completely clear yet which ones we'll pick I'll just decide that uh, probably on the night but for your own study and I would encourage you at least to read the book in one sitting um, you might want to think about these questions too we certainly will be dealing with the questions under section one next Sunday evening. Shall we have our closing prayer? Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. It's such a, a wonderful thing for us to have access to. Uh, we've got a real appetite to get into it together and we just pray for your help as we would seek to do this. Bring it to life for us. Help us to understand its message, understand its power and help us in our application of it in our personal lives and in our lives as the Church of God in Manchester. We just thank you for our opportunity and just look to you for blessing on our study as we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.